0: We doing all right? Yep. Yeah. Have a good, good lunch. Mm-hmm. Good lunch. Hopefully not too good, because if it was too good, you might go to sleep now. Um, but that's okay. If you have a big burrito in your belly right now, you know that was your choice. Um, <laughs> just remember that. Uh, but uh, yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm excited to, to continue the discussion. Uh, what we're going to talk about now in this uh, in this uh, session is uh, the spiritual disciplines. We're going to talk about spiritual disciplines and the place that the, the disciplines play in the Golden Triangle of Transformation. So, um, you know, as we think about, I, I kind of shared a little bit of my story, but and I, and I think it's important to always keep that before us. It's, it's you know, the story that we're engaged in as we are seeking to grow spiritually and to be transformed into Christ-likeness. It's, it's something that you're going to have to sort out in, in some regards for. Because um, you have a unique set of experiences that you've gone through that make you who you are, and you can get some general principles from your your fellow uh, disciples, your friends, your partners in the gospel. But at the end of the day, you're going to have to you're going to have to sort things out because it, it becomes a, a very personal journey in a lot of ways. We do it in community, and community is essential to accomplishing our overarching goals, but um, you know, there's only, there's only one Tim Brunicki, you know what I'm saying? There's only, there's only one, I know, man, if we could just multiply Tim's, we'd have a wonderful world, right? Um, it, but, but you think about the things that Tim needs or, or the things that I need or the things that you may need, there is there's a diversity of needs. And so we have to do our best to just learn principles from our friends but apply them specifically to our, our context. You know, I, I, I know I've kind of harped on this a bit, But sometimes it takes getting frustrated to really start thinking outside the box for solutions to your problems. And if you have, you know, maybe some of you have had fitness goals. Um, You wanted to get, maybe you wanted to get in the best shape of your life and you thought, I am going to, I am going to do everything I can to get fit, right? So you, you, you you stop eating fried chicken wings, you know, goal number one, let me, let me stop consuming massive amounts of, of terrible food. Um, and, and then you, you kind of build on that. You build on the, that with a variety and a diversity of, of means to get in shape. But I, if you're anything like me, at some point in time you, you've done something to try to get yourself turned around, maybe it's turned around physically, and that thing in and of itself didn't seem to be accomplishing the ends that you were shooting for. And you get, you get frustrated. And so if you're feeling frustrated in your Christian walk, I would say just kind of lean into that frustration and embrace it, because it, it can be the, the avenue by which you start thinking more creatively about how to get out of your problems. Um, and if you're in it for the long haul, as I am, I'm not going to quit. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to walk away from the Lord. So if I'm going to be in this for the long haul, I, I, I want to get on with sorting this out. I want to get on with figuring out what I need to do so that I can grow. Sometimes I'd ask myself this question when I was frustrated. What if this is as good as it gets? What if this is it? And, and this, whatever that was at the moment, it, it's not a good question. It was like, what if this is as good as it gets? <laughs> right? It's, it's, it's never, we're not asking. So it's like, man, what if this is as good as it gets? I love the scene from this movie. I don't know if you guys recognize this movie. Um, Again, I'm forgetting the name of this movie. What is it? As Good As It Gets. Thank you. As Good As It Gets. What if this is As Good As It Gets? Brilliant. Genius. So the scene is great. The scene is great because he walks into the lobby of of this, um, his his psychiatrist, uh, the lobby, and it's a a bunch of patients who are waiting to see their their, uh, counselor, right? And he, he is frustrated because his counselor is given him some direction he doesn't want. And he walks out into the lobby and looks around at all these people who are hurting. And he's like, what if this is as good as it gets? And just walks out of the office, which certainly wasn't, didn't leave them feeling too good. Um, but, with, you know, sometimes we can get into that condition, that situation as Christians. And we can, we can start thinking, we, we can start making compromises because what we've tried isn't necessarily working. Um, but, but hopefully, you know, through the course of, of this weekend, we can maybe start thinking about some ways to diversify our efforts so that we can maybe get some different outcomes and results. Amen? So we're going to look at the gospel. Um, yes, I've shared my personal testimony. Um, I want for us to look at and consider this, this big question. As we look at Jesus, as we look at uh, what he teaches us, and we, as we look at the Bible, generally speaking, this is a really important question for us to, to consider. What is the gospel? So we have a lot of answers to this. I'm I I, I sometimes I'll solicit input here, but I'm, I'm just gonna kind of run through some of the some of the, the major answers to this question that, that we get. So we might we might say, or some people might say, that the gospel is about going to heaven when we die. Um, some people might also say that the gospel is about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, or about your sins being forgiven. And I I would say in one regard or or another, the gospel at, at at its best is about all of these things. But what I want us to consider is, what was Jesus' gospel? What was the good news that Jesus spread in his message to people of the world? What did he have to say to them? And we're going to look at just a couple of places where we see evidence for the message uh, that Jesus delivered. If we could look at Matthew chapter three, verse uh, chapter three, verse one. If I could have, actually, if I can have somebody read Matthew three. Uh, I don't know if my slides are quite matching up here. Oh, I don't think these slides match this moment in this in this. Uh, presentation. So let's just go back to what is the gospel. If we could read Matthew, if I could have a reader for Matthew 3, 1 through 2, that would be great. Anybody? Yes, please. Matthew 3, verse 1 through 2. Mm-hmm. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, protect for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Okay. And then if you you, so this is John the Baptist's message, and then if we, we flip over to Matthew chapter four, verse seventeen, let's uh, let's look there. If I could uh, have one one another reader for that passage, Matthew four seventeen. Yes. All right, just verse seventeen. Yep. Um, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near." Okay. So we see, uh, we see a, 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 a parallel message between John the Baptist and, I'm sorry, yeah, John the Baptist and Jesus. So these two guys, have a, they have a message that they're delivering. And it's about the kingdom of heaven. Or also parallel to that is the kingdom of God. So one thing I want to point out about this passage in, in verse 17, it's, it's about what it infers. What does, what does this passage infer? In verse 17, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. It, it's continual, yeah. Continual message. yeah, that's right. So this, this is a, th- if, th- if this statement is true here in, Ma- in Matthew 4.17, then we should be able to look into the, the, the biblical record. I think especially we'd have to Say Let's look at Matthew, because that's where it's being said. Matthew is saying in his gospel here that from this time on, this was a theme in Jesus' ministry and life that he brings up repetitively throughout the course of his ministry. And that message that he brings up consistently is about the kingdom of God. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. So Jesus' message is not that when you, go to, when you die, you're going to go to heaven, although we can maybe make some applications between going to heaven, which is a whole other message. You know, what does it mean to go to heaven? And are we even thinking correctly about what happens when we die? It, this is a whole other kind of way to think about even the message of, of what heaven is. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot to be talked about there. There, there is a little bit of, of um, popular views out there about we're going to be ejected from this place and we're going to fly away to some, some place in outer space where we'll, we'll experience bliss. right? But if we read the Bible carefully, that's not actually what it's saying is going to happen. That might be another seminar to, to, to get into because there's a lot, a lot there. So there, there's some false information in this idea of springing, off of the earth to some ethereal place, right? The the Bible actually has a lot more to say about what's going on in uh, in, in going to heaven or experiencing heaven. Um, And is that what Jesus is inferring in these passages? Is he saying, repent so that when you die, you're going to go off to some ethereal place? I'm I'm just going to tell you that I don't think that's what he's saying. I would encourage you to study this out for yourself and understand it. But there's much more to the message that he has about what it means to uh, live in the kingdom. Is he talking about just the the transactional experience of receiving the forgiveness of your sins? Repent so that you you can receive the transactional experience of having all your sins wiped away. And then that's the end of it. Well, I, again, I'm going to answer that rhetorical question with my own answer to it, and I don't think that's what is happening here. And so we have to look at what the Bible says about life in the kingdom to understand Jesus' message. As a matter of fact, it, it's, we don't have time to do this, but to go, just go into Matthew, and you could even do this in a, in a, in a, in a, bi, a web Bible program. Just, just put in there, Kingdom of Heaven. Type in the search term kingdom of heaven in search in, in searching the Gospel of Matthew and look at all of the times when that phrase is used and what it's inferring. It's not inferring anything about what happens to you after you die. It's actually what it's all about is how your life is supposed to be functioning while you're alive. The kingdom of heaven is like. Sound familiar? It is like a mustard seed. Was that mustard seed about what happens when you you die? Is that just simply about you being forgiven of your sins? No. It's about how life works. It's about how your life is supposed to to function. So kingdom talk in the New Testament, in the Gospels, is is about life under the reign and the rule of God. So we're trying to figure out how to align ourselves under the, the rule and the reign of God and... Imagine this language to to first century Jews who are under the reign of a pretty pretty treacherous Caesar or under the the vassal care of a, a, a pawn in the Roman Empire like a King Herod or his predecessors. These people were were, they did not have the interest of the people at heart. They had the interest of maintaining their, their empire at heart. And imagine if a, a king, Jesus, you know, Jesus refers to himself as a king. The New Testament refers to him as a king. Imagine a king that comes along and he's saying, what it's going to be like to live under my reign is going to be, it's going to be like this. And this is the kind of life you'll have as you live under, under my reign. So as we think about and we talk about the, the kingdom and kingdom language, Jesus' message was that life in the kingdom, if we look at the parables, it, if we look at what it has to say, it's about just having a, a full, robust life where your, your whole life, every aspect of it, is submitted to your ruler. This is language we're not really you know, as, especially as, as Westerners and as Americans, we don't really think in ter- terms of, of kingships or dominions. Um, it kind of actually makes us maybe a little bit uncomfortable even to speak about our lives as being ruled by anybody because we, we believe and, and we have a, a, a very independent spirit in America and we believe that we are... We are independent, individual human beings that have a lot of rights. We have a, 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 a wide breadth of rights that are afforded us as citizens. And it's, it's wonderful. We're, we're very gifted and blessed because of that. But if, if, if we think about what it means to submit to this, this new rule of Jesus, we have to try to consider maybe translating some of that information about kingdoms and applying it to our present situation. You know, so we have, to, we have to be a little bit creative in the way that we think about what it might look like for us to apply those principles to the life that we're living. Okay, let's go ahead and find the right slide now. Here it is, Romans chapter 8, verse 13. Romans 8, 13, it says, If you live according to the, f- the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And this could... This could summarize life in the kingdom and its availability to us right now. You know the great thing about about the availability of the life in the kingdom is that, and this is what Jesus went around announcing everywhere he went. When he said the kingdom of God is near, what was he doing? Basically, he was letting people know, you, you don't have to wait. You don't have to wait. You know, you can experience this rule Right now. All you have to do, just come, come over here with me right now. See? Isn't that great? That was it. It, it, was a, it was a decision. And I know we've all experienced this to one degree or another. If you think about, if you're baptized, I was baptized in February of 1992. I was a student. I studied the Bible. I, I can't remember how long I studied the Bible. I think it was for like maybe like six days or something like that. I had been reading the Bible and thinking about God for years, so it wasn't just, I wasn't just new to thinking about God and Scripture, but when I started studying, I was so ready to engage with Scripture and become a disciple that it, it just took six days, and we just went a, a study a day for six days, and the seventh day, I was baptized. And, and, and that seventh day, I, I made a decision to put all the chips on the table for Jesus, and I started immediately experiencing the blessings of living under the reign of God. Immediately. Now, let's just think about in seven days, what did I do to deserve to the reign of God? I just said, yeah, okay, I'll do it. That's pretty much what it boiled down to. You know? And then I proved that I would do it by engaging in the activities that went along with really being one of his followers, right? So I had to, I had to, I had to, eventually I had to prove that I meant it, right? But at the moment, all I really had to do was just say, yeah, yes, I'll do that. And then there I am in the kingdom, receiving God's blessing and living under his reign. So now why does that matter? Because you don't have, the things we're talking about here, it, it may just be, you, it might be a decision this afternoon that you make. It might be something that's said in your fellowship with another person as you talk about the lesson. It might be something that happens to you in your car ride on, on the way home alone. It might be something when you lay your head down for a final moment of silence tonight when you're thinking about everything you've taken in this weekend and you're really reflecting. Maybe it's in the shower in the morning when you're getting ready for church. But, but there's going to be opportunities for you, too, to turn. And this is an initial decision when you become a Christian, but it's also a decision that we're constantly and continually making to turn ourselves over, to turn ourselves in to the king, King Jesus. And, you know, if you don't like king language, just imagine submitting yourself to the most generous, kind, loving, benevolent, wise, just, magnanimous, king you ha- can ever imagine submitting yourself to, and hopefully that will make it easier. But the bottom line is that you're, you're right in the midst of the opportunity to be transformed right now. All, all, all you need is to turn. But you, you're probably wondering, okay, James, this all sounds fancy, but how does this work? And, and I think we've kind of alluded to it up to this point, but really it comes down to that saying yes, and then that's Attaching your caboose to the Jesus train and, and going, going on for the while. Because let's just think about the Gospels for a minute. Think about the, the disciples. I, I love to use Mark as an example. Um, if you've read the Gospels and you know them well, you know there's some differences between the Gospels. Mark is especially helpful for instructing us in this truth. If you just watch the disciples in the book of Mark, what do we see, what do we see them doing? What are they doing? Well, they're not doing a whole lot. As a matter of fact, they're, they're asking really, like, ridiculous questions. Like, like, Jesus feeds thousands of people with bread, and, and then they're like, oh, man, I think he's wondering if we brought the bread or not. <laughs> I know he's probably pretty upset about that. Like, re- Really? Hold on, wait, did did you just see what happened? I don't think Jesus is worried about bread. But that's the kind of questions or 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 they get down to the they get down to the 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 you know kind of towards the end of Jesus ministry and they're they're trying to figure out who's going to be the Secretary of State and who's going to be the vice president. And, the, and he says, You think you can do this? And they're like, oh yeah, we can do this. Yeah, we got this. I can eat uh, out vice president, I got that. He's like, no. You still don't know what I'm talking about here, do you? And and so I think if we, we look at them, we can see that it doesn't require much to be a disciple. It actually doesn't. <laughs> it, it requires saying yes and putting our faith and trust in, in Jesus and, like I said, attaching our caboose to the train, following Jesus in his actual activities and habits. So this is, this is the third side of the triangle, the following of Jesus' lifestyle. And that's where eventually, if we're walking alongside him and we've got close enough contact with him, we'll we'll start to pick up a few things. We'll start to inherit some things from from him. See, he arranged his life around certain activities and practices. And he, he expected his apprentices to do the same. You know, so again, we have to ask ourselves, you know, what did Jesus do? What did he actually do? How did he arrange the activities of his life? Uh, let's look at John, uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, this is, a, I think, a good instructive verse about what's required of disciples. Again, uh, without the fear of, of, of judgment, but just simply evaluating where we're at. If we could read 1 John 2, 3 through 6, if I could have somebody read that for me. Yes, thank you. Okay, so the disciple, the student, the apprentice of Jesus is, is someone who, if they claim to, to live in him, then it's going to be evident because they are walking as he did. But what's involved in walking as Jesus did? So this is, I think this is the part where we have to try to maybe back off a little bit from assuming that we know what that means. And allow ourselves to critically engage with his activities and be be mindful in his presence. Because, again, it's very easy, and I fall into it all the time myself, getting caught up in the activities of busyness in life. And I just, you know, I I, I just go. And then I get to the end of my day, and I'm like, wow, that was a day. And then I get up and I do the same thing again the next day and I'm sure you're very much like me in that way. Life kind of takes over, and you almost don't feel like you have a lot of choice in the things that you do. Um, but but we have to, like, this is a good pause button weekend to just hit that pause button and go, okay, well, let me just think carefully about what he actually did and try to figure out the ways that I can start aligning my, my life and activities behind uh, the ones that he shows me. And that's an important important. Um, Button to hit. Now I we use this term spiritual disciplines, and it sounds it sounds kind of like awful, right? For if you don't love discipline, it's like, oh, we're in a spiritual disciplines class, Ugh. right? <laughs> uh, discipline. But maybe uh, uh, a phrase that uh, again, my my uh, my my mentor and one of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, uses is he refers to them as spiritual delights. Come on. Spiritual delights. And what what is delightful about discipline? A- any thoughts on what could be delightful about discipline? Maybe I can get some responses. Yeah. Yeah. It's, just, it, it's just, I don't know, it's to explain. No, I get it. Discord versus peace. No, I get it. Yeah, it's good. Discipline a lot like exercise, mm-hmm. but the more you do it in better condition you are. Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk more about how discipline provides us with the the, the capabilities we need to achieve the things we're trying to do. You know, an, an athlete, uh, an artist, uh, anybody, any, any profession, anything we do in the world, this is just how life works. The stuff we're talking about here is not revolutionary. It's, if you just think about boiling it down, it, it's very much about putting yourself in a position to be able to do stuff. So, yeah. I think about, uh, and okay. Yeah, absolutely. Any others? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. You see, we understand that discipline po- provides us with a, a means to manage all of the, the activities of life that are f- crushing in against us and making our way through our, our, our daily lives. Absolutely, yes. Well, when you're disciplined yourself, it, um, it can be easier to, you know, properly help someone else too who may be struggling. Yeah. And that alone is delightful. So uh, we're, we're saying also that you could. You could be put in a position to be a true benefit and, and help to other people who might be in a similar state as yours. And you can, you can pull them up and help them because you're in, on standing on firm ground. Yes? You can live with a lot less regret. Yeah, right? Yes. And, and I, I'm sure, yes, Come more. Well, I was going to say, going back to the temptation that we were talking about earlier, really allows you to have more opportunities to grow. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, I, and I think probably if you're like one of those like undisciplined persons you're sitting out there and you're like, I can't raise my hand about anything. This is just terrible talking about this. I would say, you know what? Uh, don't worry about that either. My, my whole goal is to get you to not worry this weekend. Um, so don't worry about that because you know what? God works with people from all shapes, sizes and backgrounds. And there's a, there are means for you, even if you struggle with quote-unquote discipline, uh, to, to grow and to find your way as well. So means are available to you, even if it's really, really hard for you to engage in some of these activities. But at the end of the day, what we're all saying here is, is the reason discipline is delightful is because it, makes, it, makes, it actually makes a way for our lives to to function and work, and it it carves out pathways for us, it enables us, it strengthens us, it provides us with tools and and capabilities that we wouldn't have otherwise, right? So we can delight even in engaging in things that might be challenging or difficult for us to do. And so uh, there are two uh, main categories when talking about spiritual disciplines that uh, we want to think about. And the two, the two categories of, of the spiritual disciplines that we're going to talk about uh, here in this session this afternoon are the spiritual disciplines of detachment. And we'll uh, explain a little bit more about what that means. But the disciplines of detachment are ones when you are retreating, retrieving, pulling, disengaging yourself from activities for the sake of focusing on Jesus and the, uh, the second category are, are the disciplines of engagement. And these are the disciplines where you're leaning into a- activities, you're leaning into relational dynamics, you're re- leaning into contact with other human beings, you're, you're engaging. So there's detachment and there's engagement. And if you, you know, I think if we were to break these up into personality makeups, people who are introverts will naturally just thrive and love the discipline of detachment right you're like i'm all go back to detachment i like that one hey i'm feeling that right and then the extroverts among us are going like man i've been detached for like uh, 30 minutes i can't take this anymore i need people right and so we see in within jesus and this these are observations about the life and activities of jesus remember we're always going back to him he did both of these. He was detached appropriately when the situation called for it, but he was also engaged appropriately when the situation called for it. So he, he was, again, that perfect balance that we're looking for in our lives as Christians with both detachment and engagement. So what we'll do now is we'll, we're going to look through and talk about uh, some, and I'm just going to give you a, a overview of a number of spiritual disciplines. And so what this is, let's just say, if I was, if I happened to be a carpenter, it's hard to get away from that here with uh, Tim in my presence. If I was a carpenter and, and I and I, and I I had a bunch of great tools, and you know, I, I think like I, you, Tim used to help me out with stuff around my apartment when we lived in Milwaukee, and, and he'd show up and he'd help me fix something, and he, he would be very like Self-effacing, and he'd help me do something awesome. And I go, man, thanks so much. And he'd say something like, "Ah, it's just because I have the right tools. And, and after you see what Tim does, you know that's a lie. Um, <laughs> but but, but th- that, 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 those tools, though, every good person in, in any industry, whether it's plumbing or carpentry or anything like that, they know that there, there, that there are certain jobs they show up to. If they don't have that tool, they're literally going to walk away from that job and they're gonna go get the tool, and then they're gonna come back to the job. Because without those tools, they, they really, it's just, it's gonna be so inefficient to try to accomplish that job. And so what I'm what I'm gonna do right now is the best example that I can come up with is I'm gonna lay out on display for you a, 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 a big set of all the tools that you could potentially use in your spiritual life. Okay? Now, I'm going to lay them out, but it, you're not, you might, I might put a tool out here and it might be one of those objects that you just look at and you go, what, what would you use that for, right? You know, if you don't know how a tool works, it's useless, right? So I might be putting you in a position where you feel like, James, wait, hold on. How do we do that? And what do we do with this? And what do we do with that? Um, maybe we can take some of that in during question and answer. Uh, to try to unpack some of those. But what I'm going to do now is just kind of spend some time laying out a number of the observations that we make in the life of Jesus so that we can get an idea of what's beyond Bible study and prayer. So that's kind of the, the, the whole point of, of this uh, time. So let's talk here. One of the first disciplines of detachment, uh, I'm going to fast forward through this because we're going to get to all these. And be, this slide will come up at the end with all of them if you want to take a picture or something like that. Um, But I like this definition. It's to refrain uh, voluntarily and temporarily from normal human needs so as to disentangle ourselves from their claims on us. Oh, and life is trying to take its claim on us. It's trying to suck every ounce of life out of us, and we need detachment to properly re-engage with God the way that he desires for us to. Um, So one of the first uh, practices is solitude. The practice of spending time without any others, or any distractions. This is a way for us to follow Christ. Uh, he was often in solitary places. In Mark chapter 5, verse 16, the Scripture says that He, he withdrew often to lonely places. So we knew it was Jesus' habit. Now, let, let's think about this also. How did, how did Jesus launch His ministry? In the desert. Now, if you thought... I've got, I, you know what, God, I feel inspired to start a new ministry. I want to do something great for your name. I am ready. I don't, I'm not exactly sure where it's all going to go, but I'm excited to do something for you. What's like the first thing you start doing when that, that thought pops into your head? Well, hopefully, we'd at least pray. Like 15 minutes or something, right? At least. All right, God, I'm ready. But one of the next things we do is we start talking to people. We start plotting and planning with other people how we're going to make this whatever thing it is happen. Lessons from the Son of God on how to plan for your mission. Go away to the desert for a month and ten days and do not eat. Huh. That doesn't sound like it's going to get us very far. I'm just going to be really hungry and alone. But I believe Jesus was at the peak of his spiritual power uh, during this time. And it made his mission become very clear to him. And so this Jesus in in the wilderness for 40 days is where we observe his practice of solitude, along with his regular retreats of solitude that appeared to be something he did on such a frequent basis that it it got his disciples curious and asking him questions about how he prayed and why he prayed. Well, why are they asking him how he prayed? Because he wasn't praying with them at the moment. He was going away to pray. And then they had to ask him, hey, wait, hold on, wait, where, Where are you doing? Where are you going? Now, at least they started asking him about prayer because when they started, they were just bothered that he wasn't there to meet the needs of all the people that were bothering them because he was gone. So we start with solitude. Solitude is a truly powerful experience, but it's also very hard to accomplish in the world that we live in. Finding quiet places and quiet space can be challenging. So we separate ourselves from the chatter of the world so we can hear from God. It's hard to hear the voice of God in the middle of the noise. Uh, We're going to talk about that in the sermon tomorrow a bit in terms of some a practice that can put us in that quiet space to start hearing uh, from God. So that's one. Silence is the next. Silence is where there is no noise or conversation. True and absolute silence is a rarity. I challenge you to go out and find a place of nearly total silence. It's very difficult. Things are humming and whirring around us all the time. As a matter of fact, if we all just are quiet in here just for a minute, What do you hear? I hear the projector. Maybe some of you hear like electricity. Maybe there's some heating vent that's making noise in here, right? It's amazing that it's it's uh, you know finding silence is actually very yep. difficult. You know, now absolute that pure silence is pretty much impossible if you have hearing. Um, but but the idea is we're trying to find a space where where uh, a measure of silence is experienced so that we can engage with God again it's it's partners with solitude um, so that we can be quiet ourselves quiet ourselves down and make our solitude a reality you know sometimes we can feel alone even in a crowd yeah. you know there's there's a certain kind of anonymity even from being in a big crowd right and if you're like me and you're in a big crowd you're like oh, God I don't I don't really this very much. I would like to find a smaller crowd, like two or three, preferably. Um, but you, you understand that you need, to, you need the silence to make that solitude really uh, have its full effect. So solitude is also a practice that uh, we can engage in. Fasting is another. Again, these are all things we see in Jesus' life. Fasting is the abstaining from food and at times drink to seek dependence on God Alone and focus on him. This is the idea of restricting ourselves in uh, from what seems to be our absolute uh, essential needs. In the New Testament, it's my understanding that uh, this is referring to the restraint from food. Uh, we do have various kinds of fasts we engage in: uh, fasting from certain types of food, fasting uh, for certain situations or uh, things that are pressing or needs. Uh, there are also fitness and health fasts that people engage in. Uh, but this practice of fasting we see in Jesus' life, it's, it's not a fitness fast. It's not a, 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 a health fast. It is, a, it is an engagement in the abstaining from food for a, a, a total zeroing in on and focus on and dependence on God. And, and we actually see him speak about what he's doing in the episode where he fasts in the desert. Because as Satan tempts him, what does he say? He says that, you know, as Satan tempts him with bread, he he says that, that I live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So he's talking about where his genuine substance comes from. And the idea of fasting, it puts us into that frame of mind that we are learning to lean into and trust Jesus just as much as we trust the chair or just as much as we trust that burrito we ate today. You know, We have confidence he's going to sustain us. He's going to provide for us. He's going to fill out that which is absent, and he's going to direct us in our fasting. Another uh, spiritual discipline is, is frugality. Uh, frugality is using your money for purposes outside of your own needs. So what greater need do we have in the United States today than to unravel ourselves from all of our consuming desires? Our desires for more are constantly ballooning and causing attention that is presently blowing up in our faces. And if we look around, we see it happening every day, the kind of sacrifices that people make for financial gain. Uh, The discipline of frugality, and I I know many uh, disciples who've worked over many years to, to maintain the discipline of frugality, and because of that, they're in a position to truly be a blessing to others that are in need, to be generous, to be kind, and, and many of us, we, we like think, I would love to be able to give people what they need. I'd love to set people up for success. I'd love to provide for people when they're in trouble. I'd love to have a, a, a giving ministry that I, that I have access to so that I can employ people to do ministry. And I can do all these things. But, but a lot of us, because, you know, we haven't lived frugally, we're not in a position to do that. Even though in our heart of hearts, we'd love to do that. Like, that's what I, I would love to be able to use my resources for. This good cause. This discipline is, again, following in the life of Christ. It is a way of, of restraining ourselves from every want and desire that we have when it comes to material things and setting that money aside with our minds and our hearts devoted to Christ and thinking about ways that, that we can employ those resources to bless God, to bless the church, and to provide uh, needs for needs. Another spiritual discipline, again, I'm laying all the tools out, is chastity. And this is the abstaining from sexuality for a time of prayer and meditation. I like to bring this up especially for single people to consider this. Um, obviously, there is a place for chastity in marriage as well. The Bible talks about uh, abstaining from sexual activity for a time of prayer under the agreement between those two, uh, between a, a husband and a wife. Uh, but also to encourage and build up the ministry of single people in the church Uh, because I believe, because we have such a strong emphasis on families, on family development, and ultimately on single people getting married and having children and all that kind of stuff, which is all good, sometimes singles in the community can feel like they're just waiting to actually be a part of the community. And, and I, you know, because we are so family strong and family sensitive, which is all good stuff, we can sometimes, sometimes singles can feel like, oh, like what, am I, what, what do I do here? The, the, the single person who's totally devoted to, uh, to committing their, themselves to abstinence and restraint from sexuality has something at their disposal that married people don't have. And that is the ability to totally and completely focus their energies and their time and their efforts on the ministry of Jesus without those concerns that are happening at home. Now, those concerns at home are wonderful, right? They're a blessing. If you're married and you have children, it's awesome. Thank God we're happy for those things. But there's a special place for uh, the single that is focused totally on God. Uh, it's Jesus. Again, what am I lifting up here? The model of Jesus' life. Jesus was single. Jesus was abstinent. Jesus was chaste. So if you're single and that's the condition of your life right now, and, and I, don't, I pr- just be happy about it. Figure out how to be happy about it. And, and ask people who are happy about it. If you're not, how do I figure out how to just get happy about the place in life that I am right now? Because it's, it's, it's a wonder, it's a blessing, and the church needs you. The church absolutely needs the singles in our community to engage in this discipline joyfully because they're going to, they're going to be a great blessing uh, to the community. So the, that is one of the disciplines of Jesus. Secrecy is another one. And secrecy is uh, that you do not, now, not trying to keep your, have a secret life, <laughs> right? Okay. No, no, it's not, it's not about that. It's about, it's about restraining yourself from seeking attention. And uh, so you don't allow anyone to know of the deeds that you're doing or the money you give in order to avoid doing them for the wrong motivations. So I like this one. It, it, I, I, like this, I like the way that I, this one is referred to. It's, this is fasting from attention. Fasting from attention. And if you think about when you, do, when you do something really good, it's really hard not to tell people, isn't it? I mean, you might like be a private person, but man, even like if you do something really cool and you're really excited about it, even with good motivations, you just got... <laughs> oh my God, that's so cool, man. Right? You just want somebody to know. And, and, and not telling them is, is, a, is a discipline. And, and it's something that can be a great blessing to your character when you fast from attention, especially if it's something that you, you're very much prone to do and you feel you, you need it. Like, I need that attention to keep going. Let's learn how to discipline ourselves and, and fast from, from that attention. Sacrifice. Uh, sacrifice is stretching ourselves, stretching the sense of, our, of what we can do without for the sake of, of those who have less. It's, it's similar, to, uh, similar to frugality, but it may be our time, not money necessarily. It may be other aspects of our life that we make sacrifices in to, to provide avenues for God to, to use the, the time, the energy, the efforts, whatever it is we're sacrificing for, for a greater blessing. All right, let, let's look at the disciplines of engagement now. And disciplines of engagement Are the practices which enable our now disentangled souls to participate in the life and activities of the kingdom of heaven? Again, and I'm bringing these all back to Jesus, Uh, these these disciplines we can recognize in the life of Jesus. Uh, The first one is study. Study is engaged to engaging the word of God and pondering it deeply. We're gonna, this is actually, this is going to be a big part of the sermon tomorrow. We're gonna talk about study of Scripture a spiritual study of Scripture. Um, but this, this, there's, there's no greater source for our formation than the Bible. Um, it possesses the, the wonders of God. It possesses, it possesses the wisdom of God, the love of God, everything that we need. It's the, it's the source material for everything we do. So engaging in, in the study of Scripture is a way for us to uh, develop and grow uh, in like no other way. And I think this is probably one of our stronger points. As a community, at least one of the things we value highly as a community. Um, Another one is worship. Uh, Worship is engaging in corporate uh, uh, worship, and and that worship also includes private time with God. Sometimes worship. So one of the things that happens is worship becomes what we do when we all are singing together in church. But that's not worship. That's 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 a form of worship. We can worship God from, our, from the side of our beds. We can worship God in the shower. We can worship God in our cars. We can worship God with two or three of us together in our homes. We can worship God alone. We can worship God with thousands. Right? Worship of God is the, the devotion and the exaltation of God. It's lifting God up in our hearts and honoring, revering, respecting just pouring ourselves up and out to him as, as our God. And it's funny how you think about the, the gestures of, of our, our bodies even. One of the natural things that happens when we, we think about worship is we, we kind of just do this. It, it's, it's almost kind of an instinctual thing or depending on what the, what you, what the, per, the moment is in, in your worship, you, you may end up on your knees. But I'll guarantee you, your worship is always gonna have some bodily reaction. Even if it's very subtle. Depending on your personality. You might not be a hand waver. Right? So so we get into worship and I think it's really funny when like there's like somebody who's just there a hand waver. And then you got, you know, the frozen chosen. Like, uh, <laughs> like, like, oh, like, I don't know if I like this. I wish that guy would stop waving his hands It'd make me uncomfortable. Right? But we have every opportunity to devote our energy to honoring and lifting God up, whether it's privately or uh, corporately. This is one we're going to do tonight, celebration. Celebration is a practice of being grateful and thankful, both in your relationship with Christ and with other disciples. This is, this is one that I think we, over, we overlook sometimes. We're in the grind trying to work it all out, being great disciples, work hard, sacrifice, be frugal, do all the right things. But if you look at it, I find it really interesting. If you if you look at the, the practices in, that are embedded in the Jewish calendar, and you look at, at the way that their calendar played out, they had somber moments in their calendar. But the majority of their practices were like, dude, bring that lamb out here, man. Let's slaughter that we're gonna we're gonna eat good tonight, guys. It was happy, it was joyful, it was family, and it was something that was looked forward to. Now, I, one one thing I'd I'd like to you know I wish I had a picture of this, but it, one of the things you see in Israel during the Festival of Booths is you you'll literally see Has, uh, Hasidic Jews, you know the 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 the, the, the curls, the black. Coats, the hat, everything—you'll literally see guys riding around on bikes with booths on them, with tassels on the side of their bike, with pinwheels on top of the booths, and they're just riding around. Festival of booths—it's like uh, it's like some crazy festival in the desert or something, you know, like like uh, Burning Man or something. I don't know, but it—but it, they're so—they're—it's just like a. Life is good. We're happy. We're grateful to God. And I pray, you know, that's what tonight is all about. Yeah. So celebration, we got to just put, embed this in our life and calendar as much as we can because we need it. We need to be reminded of, we have lots of reasons to celebrate. Service is another one. It's giving our time to the church and to others. I'm just going to kind of breeze through some of these others here. Prayer, we know well about that. Fellowship, we love that. I love this quote from Dallas Willard. The fire of God kindles higher as the brands are heaped together and each is warmed by the other's flame. The members of the body must be in contact if they are to sustain and be sustained by each other. We're the fire. We're the fire, but we're only the fire when we're together. I mean, we have, we have that, that wonderful flame of God working in our individual lives, but, but it's, when we, it's when we come together, the, the, the power of that fire is collected and multiplied and grows exponentially. And then uh, confession, and I, and I think this is something um, we have to learn about and and practice in a more. We just got to be healthy minded about confession, because if you look at what the Bible says about confession, fundamentally what it comes down to is I am going to seek a place of confession to God and to others so that you, brother or sister, can pray for me it's not so that I can be forgiven by you like you're some kind of priest behind a, 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 a curtain. I'm forgiven. I've, been, I've received forgiveness already. I don't need you to forgive me. Okay? I don't need you to forgive me. So you can forgive me or hate me because of my sin, but but whether I'm forgiven or not doesn't depend on how you react to my sin. So right-mindedness about confession is I come to Joel because he's a a trusted brother, and I tell him this is what's going on in my life. I am struggling with this. And and he goes, bro, I I, thank you so much for being open with me. Let's pray. And I'm going to start praying for you every day about that because you can't, you can try to fix me and give me all the advice in the world, but I need the spirit of God in me, and I need you to pray for me because you're not going to fix me. Jesus is going to fix me. Yes. And that's what this is all about, guys. That's what the spiritual disciplines is all about. It's about receiving the blessings and the gifts that God has planned for us. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, uh, we're at 1.30 now, so we're about halfway through the last session here. Take a short break, stretch, get coffee. We'll come back in about 10 minutes, and we'll close out with our final session.